and welcome to Talking and Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hey, Tamar. Uh, unfortunately, Mimi Lewis isn't available to talk with us this month, but we have two wonderful guests. This month, we're talking to Tema Smith about the current Black Lives Matter protests and how the Jewish community has been and should be working for racial justice. And for our second segment, we're talking with Nessa Mai Rose about a recent uproar around determining how many Jewish people are also people of color. Let's dig in. So uh, Tema Smith is Director of Professional Development at 18 Doors, formerly Interfaith Family, and a contributing columnist at The Forward. She is joining us from her home in Toronto. I think. Is that correct, Tama? That is correct. Yeah. (laughs) Welcome. We're so happy to have you um, joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. And, you know, it's the first question that everyone asks when I've been doing interviews lately. And it's funny because today, I finally, as I was trying to unpack that answer for myself, I realized that my answer is simultaneously like, I don't know, and also not good. Um, and um, when I say I don't know, I mean, um, I know that my stress level is off the chart. I'm not sleeping properly. I'm not eating well. Um my dog, I jokingly say, like, this is, you know, if this is my barometer, but um, my dog has been, like, sitting on my lap and, like, slowly and rhythmically lis- licking my arm on, like, which is not a thing he normally does. So I'm obviously giving off some high stress um, vibes. Um, and, you know, I alternate uh, between anger and deep sadness and, like, glimmers of hope because. You know, there, there's just a lot of movement right now and I don't know where it's leading and then despair because I don't know where it's leading. And really, it's just been a whole amalgam of complicated relation, uh, uh, com- complicated emotions that I am not yet in a place to unpack and truly may never be. Um, and so I'm just trying to live in that. That's fair. <laughs> and I also feel like there is some wisdom in just being like, actually, maybe we can't know right now how we're doing. Like, I, I've been thinking a lot about how, like, this moment is really important. And also, there's a lot happening right now. But in a way, it's like, we're not going to actually know how this all really went for kind of a while. Right. And one of the things that I've said more than once is like, it was actually, I think, in a phone conversation with my mom, and I was upset. And I said something like, it just all feels I, I said, like, I, I'm upset and also hopeful because it just all feels broken. And she was like, what do you mean? And the more we sort of, my mom's a therapist, so of course she said, what do you mean? Um, <laughs> what do you mean? Um, so the more I unpacked it, the more I realized that actually what I meant was I don't know whether it's broken, like, irreparable or broken, like, cracked open. Um, and I don't think we know that. And that's the reality is, you know, I keep thinking, like, the genie's out of the bottle or whatever those saying is like we know that something has shifted fundamentally um in our ways of understanding our society and rapidly has shifted but we just have no idea where it's going from here and i think that's a lot of why the feelings are so hard to 
sort of dwell in, um, but also so necessary to dwell in. You know, Tama, I feel sometimes that, um, you know, we all have these these different elements of our identities that we bring to bear whenever we're relating to current events. And I, I feel like I am hardly reacting to this moment in the movement for Black Lives as a Jew, meaning I'm reacting as a white person. I'm reacting as a person with privilege in a lot of ways and and taking stock of what that means. I'm reacting as somebody who works in public policy and specifically in a, a subfield of public policy that's focused on structural inequality issues. And so a lot of what's happening in my networks has to do with that and how this is intersecting with uh, education policy, which is my specific area. And I'm experiencing this in a lot of these ways, but I don't feel like my either intellectual or emotional response is tied that in very much with my Jewish identity. And I'm wondering, as somebody who is a Jewish community professional, whether you feel like your Jewishness is really central to the way you're responding and whether it is to other people in your network. Sure. That's actually a really interesting question. And I don't think I've really thought that through right, um, thought that through really clearly. Um, I know that there are people in my network who are really trying to draw from um, both sort of the Jewish prophetic tradition, um, but also the traditions of Jewish um, of sort of Jewish involvement in civil rights and things like that to really inspire them and propel them forward. Um, and, you know, I'm seeing the beginnings of some liturgy um, written to respond to the particular moment. I saw a version of El Male Rachamim um, that actually is written, and I'm sure it wasn't written for this, I'm sure it's been around for a while, but um, that has a line inserted about victims of racial violence and, and lynchings. Um, and, you know, the, just just seeing people draw real sort of wisdom from Jewish tradition um, in, in those ways. Um, for me, I don't know that, uh, you know, I've been talking a little bit to some people in my network about this, and I think my, my, core values are very much um, Jewish values for me, um, which is why I'm a Jewish professional. Um, but, you know, I think um, so in those ways, like there was an article a number of years ago that I often refer to as like, is Judaism an app or an operating system? Um, and I kind of feel, which I love, highly recommend the article. It's really great. Um, and I kind of feel like in many ways, Judaism is just my operating system. It's not necessarily I tap into and out of. Um, and I think that's also partially because I'm not like, I'm not somebody who davens on my own. Like I go to synagogue from time to time. Like Judaism is very much for me, um, cultural and values based and family based. And it's what, you know, my family does together. Um, and just very much in that aspect. At the same time, though, I will say, like, I look at that picture of Heschel and Martin Luther King, like, daily. And, I mean, I always have had sort of a printout of it. Um, but now, like, every time I'm feeling tapped out, I look at that picture again. Um, and so, in that sense, like, that's really just being like, we do this as Jews, and we do this as Black people, like, and we do it together in lockstep. Um, and so, I think there's a lot of that sort of pushing me forward in this work. And I will also say, um, the last thing that I will say is, like, I think 
99% of the conversations that I've had about this at this point are with other Jews, um, whether they're Jews of color or specifically black Jews, or whether they're conversations like this of people sort of wanting to get the, the perspective that I bring to it. Um, so I'm very much living this, and I also live in a Jewish neighborhood, um, like I'm very much living this where like my entire milieu, um, other than when I speak to my father, um, is Jewish. And so I think it's just become so um, woven into the conversations that I'm having, but in really implicit ways, not in sort of like, and I'm tapping into my Jewish tradition to access thing X that's going to move me forward. You mentioned a little bit about like how many conversations you're having. And I have certainly noticed the past two weeks, I would say just like a lot of people who I have not seen talk about the movement for black lives and use the words black lives matter before using them. Um, which has been super exciting to me. Um, but also I feel a little bit like I don't know where to tell people to like, I, uh, I, I just don't know, like, where should be, where should people be starting? And sometimes I feel like everyone's starting in this like really super intense place. And I feel a little bit anxious of like, I've already seen people be like, well, what are people going to actually be doing in several months? And it's like, part of me is like, maybe we don't need to pre-worry as like, maybe we could just ease off on some of the pre-worrying that we do as Jews. But I also, I'm like, I totally understand that concern from the other point of like, okay, we're, I feel like the Jewish community has been kind of late to this party in some ways. And like, I, I'm, I'm thinking about like, what, where are the places where we really need to catch up? Sure. So I, I think, I mean, this is something I've been thinking about a lot. And I read a really great thread on Twitter the other day that was saying um, it wasn't directed to Jews. It was a person of color, a non-black person of color, which I think is important in this context. Um, sort of saying, like, welcome to the conversation, people who haven't been having it. By the way burnout's a thing. Um, and so like, here are some things that we've learned to do to protect ourselves um, and sort of outlined a bunch of steps for self-care. I wish I could rattle them off. I don't really remember what she said. Um, I probably am not doing any of them right now, but that's neither here nor there. Um, I'm drink I have been drinking a lot of water. That's, that's like a good thing. Um, but, you know, I also think about like, this isn't... Um, Yes, we are in like an acute pain point moment right now. Um, and that might last for months. It also might not. Um, and the reality is that the work will still be there to be done. And so what I've been recommending to everyone who asks me is like, starts like, yes, if you are able to go to a march and that's something that you feel compelled to do, like, go, please do that. That's exciting. It's great to be out. But like, learn and commit yourself to incremental learning. You don't need to read every book that's ever been written about structural racism in the United States this week um, and watch every movie and everything. Like this is an ongoing process of unlearning and relearning um, that even black folks are going through on an ongoing basis. Um, and so what I just really hope kind of comes out of this is a commitment to try and, you know, people talk about the, the diversity lens or the equity lens, that people commit themselves to try and sort of have that lens on the world so that 
they're in a position to ask the questions, to seek out the resources to understand things. You know, I, I was watching, uh, I watched the CNN Sesame Street Town Hall today. And so much of that was like how to start conversations um, and, you know, the parent directed content as well. And just really recognizing that if this isn't a conversation that you've been having and for a lot of our community, it is not. Um, this is just the beginning of it. Um, and so don't like burn out in the first week because structural change doesn't happen in a week. And we have a long, a long fight ahead of us. <laughs> And like, I'm not just talking about until the election, like we have a long fight ahead of us um, and people are waking up and I'm excited that people are waking up, but it's, it could be for a lot of people extremely overwhelming. And when you get overwhelmed, it's very easy to crawl back into it, into sort of a place that's of comfort. Um, so like, that's my number one call to everyone is like, let this be an opening um, and take it as slowly as you need to. Um, we're not going to revolutionize race in, in North America, and I include Canada in that. We're not going to revolutionize the way that race and race politics play out in North America um, in in a week or a month or a year. Um, all we can do is commit ourselves to do that work. Um, and I, one thing I will add as well is in the Jewish community as well, I think... You know, we all want to affect change on a, on a large scale, but we have work to do in our own house. Um, and that's a little bit more like, you know, in I always think about um, setting goals and like, you know, setting setting what would it look like to set a goal to address the systems of racism that work within our Jewish institutions um, and start to and start to unpack those. That gives us a place, a concrete place, um, to actually start to apply these principles that we want to see in society at large. And I truly think that, like, you don't start change at the top. You start change in your community, and it ripples outward. And I, you know, I'm really hoping. I'm having so many Jewish communal conversations over the next two weeks, say. Um, that I'm really, really hoping that people take it back into, say, for example, their synagogue and say, hey, how come we don't have any black Jews in this organization? Um, what does that mean? What, what are we doing right or wrong? Um, what are the leadership pipelines we need to put in place so that if we do have a black Jew, the board service seems like an attractive option and they actually want to step up into a policy position in our congregation and doing all of that work um, intentionally I think is really just really key at this moment and like like none of us are gonna fix systemic racism in North America tomorrow all we can do is put in the work um, bit by bit uh, to really move the needle and that's that's what it is this is a process of moving the needle you drew an interesting separation there um, between addressing the racist structures within the Jewish community and addressing broader societal racist structures as a Jewish community. And I would love to just dive a little bit more into each of those things, because when you talk about, okay, think about your shul board, think about who the leadership is and think about who you're representing and who you're not. That's something that's about structural racism within your individual Jewish community versus is your Jewish community and are your Jewish institutions saying anything, doing anything, being anywhere as relates to this moment about structural racism generally or 
or police violence against black people specifically. And it seems like there is a danger of falling in the middle. Um, and what I mean by that is um, for Jewish communities to say, this isn't about my shul board or this isn't about my shul membership. This isn't about how people are experiencing my community. This is about a very specific and very intense problem of police violence that has truly nothing to do with this building and this community and this shul. So nothing we would do internally would matter at all, but also what does this really have to do with us as a Jewish community? I don't feel like I have any major contributions to make as an institution to the bigger societal conversation. And so I'm, I'm afraid that it falls into a silent middle for a lot of communities, uh, at least at sort of first glance. And I'd love to think about how we can push those communities on either or both sides of that equation to something concrete. Right. So, I mean, I think there's a few different ways to sort of approach that. And one of them is that a lot of the problems that we have around race in the Jewish community are, um, um, like microcosms of the broader systems of structural racism we live in. Um, so, you know, um, structures of minority cultures not being able to step up into leadership roles. Um, and also some of the things that cause very real, that are very real structures of racism broadly impact Jews of color. Um, so, you know, as, as a Jewish community, I, I think we tend to sort of even look at say for example black Jews within the community and assume that they're all um, you know there's been a lot of conversation I know in Toronto of like poverty in the Jewish community for example and like how the Jewish community isn't necessarily great at acknowledging that like our poverty levels are about the same as society in general Um, and so when you look at all these structures and systems that are in existence like there's no reason to believe um, that those things are not also um, impacting the the Jews of color and black Jews um, within our communities so there's that piece of it Another piece of it is that Jewish communities traditionally um, over the last number of years have cultivated fantastic relationships with the police. Um, And that is a matter of our own safety. Um, And, you know, so many of our I've I've worked at synagogues for eight years. We had great relationships with the local police Um, and we had them because we were the target of vandalism or the potential target of vandalism, of potential God forbid, terrorist attack. Um, And so those relationships with law enforcement became really important because you needed to be able to call them um, and say like, hey, we're having this big event. Um, What do you recommend we do? Do you think we need you to be here? And all of that sort of thing. Um, And so I think that's a very real thing that um, the Jewish community has worked to cultivate that relationship. And when we're talking specifically about, I mean, I think that the issue and what we're seeing in the streets right now is so much bigger than police brutality that has led to it. And like, yes, police brutality was like a very obvious place to start. Um, but I think even the issue of police brutality and the ideas that we're starting to see about defunding the police and everything like that, when people are talking about defunding the police, um, they're not talking about like some utopia. I'm sure there are a handful of people who are talking about some utopian world in which there is no need for police because we all just love each other and no crime ever happens. The majority of people are not talking about that. Um, When they're talking about defunding the police, they're talking about investing um, in the systems that have propagated structural racism so that there is no need to over-police black communities. Not that there's necessarily a need now, but that 
if you shift the money that these like militarized police departments are getting and then abusing black communities with into education or having a social worker do the wellness check um, or investing in affordable housing or like all of these numbers of things, you actually end up with less of an acute need for police who then can abuse that power. Um, so I think, you know, when we're thinking about that and, and I think about our, our Jewish communities is we have um, unique power in a number of ways. One is um, our relationship with the police. Another is that I know at least where I go to synagogue, you know, the mayor shows up for high holidays, right? Like we have these great relationships that we've cultivated that we can really use for advocacy. Um, and I know we've at Holy Blossom where I used to work and now go to synagogue, We've lobbied um, around affordable housing. We've lobbied about shelter systems for homelessness, like uh, affordable housing and homelessness was one of the major things that we did and very successfully got advanced policy. And if the Jewish community took that political capital that we have from doing this work for years and years and years um, and deployed it strategically, I think that would be really huge. The other piece, though, of that that I just want to name is the flip side of that, which is, I think, a little bit of a danger, um, which is that the Jewish community has particular ways of operating and political capital. Um, and it's very easy for us to come in, and I use us broadly. I, I sit in both the Black community and Jewish community, but I work um, and live largely in sort of a w very white Jewish community, that there's... Um, maybe a risk, an inherent risk of saying, well, we're really good at this, let us do it, and not taking the leadership and the guidance um, from the people who um, are the ones who really should be running, should be directing us. And, you know, this gets to the, the topic of allyship. And um, one of the things that I was thinking, um, yes, it was D-Day over, over the weekend, and I was thinking about the word ally in terms of the allied forces in, in World War II and, you know, the, the idea that the allies actually functioned as a single force. But, you know, presumably, and I, I'm not a military historian, but I think it's pretty logical to assume that this is how it worked. Different people knew different terrain and would take different strategic leadership at different points. And I think when I think about what these, this idea of the Jewish community getting out there um, and doing this work, that's how I almost imagine that playing out is like follow the strategic, follow the leadership of the people who know the terrain of what they're fighting against. Um, I want to go back to that idea of the middle a little bit. And this is where I think the Jewish values piece comes so much, um, at least for me, in, in hand. Um, and it's really just like these Jewish values around equality and peoplehood and justice. And those might not resonate with everyone. And the reality is not everyone's going to come along for this fight. Um, and I think that's something it's uncomfortable. It breaks my heart, but it's the reality. And I don't want to pretend that it's not. Um, but for the people who are like, well, what's in this? Like, what's my stake in this? Well, your stake in this is a society that treats all of its people equal, which is something I think we can all agree is a goal. Um, and a society also, you know, and I, I look at some of the issues around policing more so in the U.S., um, but. I'm sure most of the people listening to this are in the U.S., is like some of the things that we're learning about the police forces um, actually are dangerous to Jews, too. 
like that they've been infiltrated by white supremacists fairly broadly. Um, And that's dangerous to us as Jews, because these are, as I said, the people we're trusting to protect our institutions may or may not be neo-Nazis. And that is a scary thing to think about. And I think, you know, as much as I think that we shouldn't be in this fight because it's important for Jews, like the security of Jews, I also think about... um, so many of the things that are at stake if we don't see ourselves as tied to it. And some of those are real security concerns for our community. I want to go back to the question of leadership, because this is something that I have struggled with a little bit because I'm always wanting to make sure that the racial justice work that I'm seeing in my Jewish community is being led by Jews of color, but also not want, I don't want to force that work on people because I know how what a like big and em- emotional an administrative burden it can be to do this kind of organizing. And I often feel like, oh my God, we, you know, (laughs) the Jewish community is like, oh my gosh, we really have to fix our internalized racism. Let's go to the people who've been putting up with our (laughs) racism for this whole time and ask them to do a bunch of work with us. Like it makes me so uncomfortable to ask that of people. But on the other hand, obviously I see the kind of inherent problem with having it not be led by the people who for whom it it is most relevant. So I, I'm I'm always wondering like how do you go about balancing those things? I think that's a real tension and I and it's a tension that I grapple with a lot. I mean some of it like I don't want it and I joke, I say this facetiously, like yes, I live my life as a, like a mixed race Jew um who talks about race and talks about identity and like I grew up in a family that like did this professionally, so it's not really a shock that I'm coming out and like being involved in this fight within our community. But I don't want to be like the black Jew who gets called cuz I'm the black Jew. Um and I want to get called because my expertise is worthwhile and interesting and um you know it's not just like let's pick one um there are though i will say a number of us and i don't want to say who have put our who have offered ourselves up as tokens i don't mean it that way i'm being kind of facetious but there are a number of us who have put ourselves out there and said we are here um we do this we are experts in this call us, talk to us, consult with us, um, but pay us. (laughs) And I think that's, you know, an ongoing issue is like, I do free stuff all the time and I'm lucky that I'm in a position personally that I'm able to do free stuff all the time. But the reality is, is if it's going to be really, really, really hard work, like I want to feel like that is recognized and appreciated the same way having any organizational change consultants from outside your community step in to help you move this along. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've noticed is sometimes it gets described as like, well, it's really, it's for the family, right? Like it's that kind of a feeling of like, you're coming in as a Jew who is impacted by our behavior. Let's have like a family mediation session here. And like, yeah, sure. Okay. Um, there is a little bit of that feeling to it, but like, let me volunteer myself for that. Don't call me and ask me to volunteer myself for that. And so some of those pieces are there. On the, on, on the other hand as well, like, I don't think that there's actually anything wrong if there isn't somebody to lean on for the support or pay for the support who volunteers themselves to do the work. Um, 
and offer yourself as allies to outside organizations, for example, um, or do the work, like have a, I'm going to be like, really like, I worked in synagogues for eight years. So I think you'll like get that in what I'm about to say. Hold like a reading group, um, like Havara, that is dedicated to reading books on racial justice in the U.S. Because I think a lot of what our obligation is right now is to change the conversation and to educate ourselves. Um, I'm still learning. I'm learning constantly. I learned yesterday that my high school was named after a slave owner. Like, I'm learning constantly in Canada. Just putting that out there because Canadians like to be like, we weren't like that. And in the meantime, my high school, which is the oldest high school in Toronto, was named after a slaveholding family. McGill University was named after a slaveholding family. Just throwing that out there. Um, But, you know, there's just so much learning and unlearning to do that even if we can't, like write letters or call and lobby or whatever it might be, doing that internal work of reading the book um, and having a conversation about it. Because I think also policy starts to shift when people start to feel a certain way and vote with those feelings um, and and start to have certain information and can spot things. So as an example, like institutional racism that plays out in organizations in which we work, if you're blind to it because it's not something that's um, in like front of mind for you, you, you just don't see it. Um, and so those little things that we can do to educate ourselves, I would, I'm willing to bet that the vast majority of synagogue boards have never asked themselves the question of who's not represented on my board? Unless they're like, why don't we have a young family on our board? Or like, should we have someone from 20s and 30s um, on our board? They don't say, um, I mean, women are generally overrepresented on synagogue boards, so I won't go there. But like, most synagogues aren't saying, do we have someone from the LGBTQ community? Do we have a person of color? Do we have somebody who has chosen Judaism? Like all of these people who might have differing experiences of our congregations, we're not necessarily looking to make sure that they are represented either on the board or even on like committees or in advisory roles or like, hey, can I just, you know, one of the things that we all, I always recommend when I do work with interfaith family uh, work is like, do you have an interfaith family who's like actively using your community that you can say, hey, how's this going for you in a private way? Um, and those are all of the little things that we can do that might not be like writ large societal change and might not even be driven um, by the people who are most impacted, but will have meaningful change. And I, I mean, I think what I really come back to a lot is that we all want to change the world, right? Like we all want racism, systemic, structural, institutional, and overt and microaggressions, et cetera, et cetera. We want it to go away. And it's so easy to worry about or to get caught up in the giant picture of how to get rid of racism um, that it's easy to sort of lose um, sight of the fact that actually rooting out small bits of racism is important. Um, and how can we each commit ourselves to doing incremental work? Um, not everyone is going to be the huge change maker, and that's fine because those incremental pieces support the work of the people who are out there really shaking things up. Thank you so much for your time, Tama. This has been so helpful and fruitful for us. And um, 
I know you're very busy and you're helping a lot of communities think through these questions now. So I really appreciate your time for this conversation. I am very grateful to have been asked and I'm excited. Um, And, you know, it's one of those things of it's so nice to sort of meet people who have been in my orbit, but I've never actually connected with and may the times be better next time. Um, But thank you so much for inviting me on. I really look forward to um, hopefully talking again one day. I would love that. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. And um, I will hear the end result of of, uh, Nessa of yours um, when it is live. I'm going to go and walk my dog now. (laughs) Bye. Bye. For our second segment, um, we are speaking with... Nessa, my Rose. Um, Nessa, I realized I don't know where you're located. Where are you? Where are we talking to you from? I am in Washington Heights in Manhattan. Wonderful. Well, um, we're so glad to have you. Um, so I'm going to give a little context about this um, conversation. Um, in mid-May, uh, eJewish Philanthropy published an article called How Many Jews of Color Are There? by Ira M. Sheskin and Arnold Dushevsky. The article is excerpted from a forthcoming chapter in the next American Jewish yearbook, and it refutes a May 2019 demographic report that concluded, quote, at least 12 to 15 percent of the nation's Jews identifies Jews of colors, quote, broadly anyone who identifies as non-white. Sheskin and Dashevsky argue the number stands closer to 6 percent. The article prompted a number of uh, responses, including one from Tama, who we just spoke with. Um, we were we want to talk about this because Nessa brought um, to our attention the hashtag JOCs count a Jewish communal sign on letter. Um, so we wanted to talk with you about your advocacy and about kind of this this particular issue and kind of how it is even more important um, now than it was a month ago when it kind of came onto the scene. So welcome. Thanks. Uh, It's good to be talking to you all. Um, Okay, so to actually start this conversation, I actually thought it was kind of interesting how I got pulled into it because I actually just saw this letter floating around like I had nothing to do with it. Um, And I sent it out, I think, to Mimi who might have gotten it because Mimi's on the Hadar listserv or something. Um, with like, kind of like, oh, you guys should sign on to this. And in terms of like framing, like why you want to talk to me in particular about it, I'm just like curious about like what the thought process was. Um, well, I'm also on a Hadar listserv. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, um, I think Mimi and I were both taken with, with the email that you sent to the Hadar listserv saying like this is really important and, um, we need to talk about it. And, um, specifically, um, you said, I bet y'all, some of y'all are thinking, yeah, well, other organizations are racist or the Orthodox community is racist, but not my community and organization. Sadly, you would be incorrect. (laughs) So, I mean, I agree, but, um, I, I kind of wanted to, to dig into that a little bit. And also like, it feels like there, it feels like there's two things. Like one is like, talking about the racism in the Jewish community. And the other is like the very specific issue that was brought up by this article about like the number of Jews of color and how that kind of census taking has, has been problematic and how the like context of the article is problematic Mm -hmm. and upsetting to people. 
Yeah. So I think I, when I was emailing you, I said like in, ter- in terms of framing the conversation, actually talking about the context, I wanted to talk about something that was like already on your podcast from yeah. like a few episodes ago. Um, and I think my like impetus to be like, oh, like we need to talk about that was actually the feeling by like reading the original article, reading the articles follow up that... Um, these questions about like how many Jews are there or whatever questions they're asking about the numbers of Jews of color, like didn't really seem to care about the actual experiences of Jews of color. And also like, wasn't like, I I don't know, like I, as I said, like I'm a random Jew of color. I'm not like a professional or anything, but like, I think like in terms of social science research, when you're asking questions about numbers, you really do want to be understanding like the deep, things underlying why you're asking questions about which particular numbers and when you present those numbers understand that like those numbers are being presented in a context um and i think that both the original article and again like that doubling down that they sent out afterwards uh like explaining that they weren't racist and they couldn't be criticized for stuff they didn't do like totally missed the point um, of like actually thinking about what are Jews of color experiencing. I also think they did mention, oh, maybe we should do some qualitative research. Uh, But again, like that research was like attitudes and behaviors. And again, like never mentioned what are the experiences of Jews of color in our communities? Um, Because those questions, like as Tema also noted, are like, you know, that they're very related to everything that's going on in the world. Um, Like the increased like visibility of anti-black violence right now and the like increased visibility of the black lives matter movement right now like that all like ties in to what jews of color in the community are experiencing and then when you publish an article that's like oh we're gonna this is like a philanthropy magazine and actually there aren't 12 percent jews of color they're only six percent jews of color like i think what i got out of reading that is like oh like our funding priorities are between this 12 percent number and the six percent number and not actually uh like having anything to do with like what are the experiences of jews of color and like should we be concerned about that so that was kind of my like introduction to that. Yeah, I mean, I think the the funding question is kind of what I was wondering about when I was reading this. Like, what are they getting at by being like, well, actually, it's six percent. But I I think even more than that, the the question, like when I was doing more research, it felt to me like this is really. I mean, I'm certainly not a census researcher, but it really reminded me of a lot of the conversations happening around the 2020 census in the United States about like what, um, you know, like what you can fill, what you can say about your own identity um, and how important that is in terms of like funding decisions are, are based on that. And the kind of refutations of the E-Jewish philanthropy article that I saw were really focused on the fact that like, well, we're asking about race really inconsistently in these Jewish demographic studies. So like, we actually just can't say, and they are experts who should know that. So we just can't say like, we don't have apples to compare to apples. Like we have all of these different kinds of things. So we just can't get a good number. And they're saying they're kind of, well, actually in the situation is really not helpful. And they should have known better right I also thought like the forwards framing I know like people don't come up with their own headlines of being like how many Jews of color are there fewer than you think like was very 
I don't know. I think the whole conversation is people actually don't think that there are that many Jews of color in like communities. Like every conversation I've had with people, they're like, oh, like there aren't that many of you guys. And it's like actually hard to have conversations because it's hard to find other Jews of color. And like, I don't know anyone who's like, I think there's a ton of Jews of color. So it was just like weird framing. It does seem like a lot of the problem is that being a person of color and being a Jew in these contexts are both matters of self-identification. Meaning as you respond to a survey question, those are both matters of self-identification. And your experience as a Jewish person or as a person of color or the intersection of those things is going to inform how you answer that question. And so to talk about this as though the numbers are capturing some binary and undeniable reality, you are or you aren't, um, and without without recognizing the context that might make people answer that question in different ways is where it seemed to fall through for me. Um, and I just wonder if we were a more... Uh, a more aggressive editor um, of that publication and giving and giving these writers significant notes. Um, what would we push on in terms of here's what's missing? And what would, you know, if you were editing that piece, what pushback would you have been giving? Numbers are important. And I think like a lot of their like, again, like doubling down on their thing. We're like, oh, you guys don't think numbers are important. And I don't know. I would like question again, like which numbers they're asking about, right? Like first, well, okay. So the first thing you mentioned is like, it's about self-identification, but then in the article they were like, oh, some people who identify as Jews of color are actually not Jews of color. And it's like, why are you doing that to people? Like people can identify how they want. And like you as like random non-Jews of color, like don't get to be like, you're not a Jew of color, especially if you're going to be perfectly happy to trot those people out as examples of Jews of color when you're like, oh yeah, there are Jews of color in leadership positions, right? It's like, you're going to like change the definition of a Jew of color whenever it's like convenient for you. So that was like frustrating for me. I also thought it was really weird that they assumed that like you can't be a Jewish, a Jew of color and also be Ashkenazi. Like I was like, right. Those are, (laughs) that's a very strange assertion. Mm -hmm. Like I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a fair a fair approach. Right. And then secondly, like while they're talking about numbers, right? Like there's plenty of numbers you could compare that 6% number to and they chose the random 12% number or not random, but they chose that 12% number. But like, why weren't they like, okay, let's compare that 6% Uh, number to the Jews of color in rabbinical schools or the Jews of color on like shul boards or like in executive positions of organizations that are not focused on Jews of color or like in day schools. Like I can come up with like example after example of things they could have compared that 6% number to and they chose like they were like, that's not an important question. And it kind of just like signals to me like, oh, like we don't actually care about how Jews of color are experiencing like community and like life as a Jew of color. Something that I, speaking of kind of like the self-identifying as Jews of color, something that I have seen some some of in the past year that I actually find really upsetting is Jews who are saying like, because I'm Jewish, I'm not white. Like I wouldn't answer that I was white because I'm Jewish. These are people who like, I don't know their background, but they seem to be saying that they otherwise would consider themselves white, but they're Jewish, so they're not. And I feel like feel not good about that, but I'm wondering like how, it seems like this has kind of opened a bigger conversation that we need to have about whiteness in the Jewish world. Um, And I'm wondering like, where do you think we start with that? Like, what are the questions that people need to be starting to think about? Because there's a lot there, clearly. I feel like the, 
I don't even want to talk about it because it like makes me so angry. But like, I feel like when people are doing like, oh, I'm also a Jew of color, it's like 95% of the time to derail a conversation about like the struggles of people who like, okay, so like, let's talk about like Black Lives Matter right now, right? So people are like, okay, the police are killing black people at a very high rate um, and we need to care about people of color. And then like some Jew pops in and is like, okay, but what about the fact that I am kind of a person of color? And it's like, you're like, you're just using that. It's not that like you're using that to kind of say like your struggle is not important. And I want to talk about myself right now. And that's like where I often see it. And I don't like, I don't want to say like there's zero things to discuss in that conversation. I just like feel like whenever people bring it up, it's a hundred percent at the wrong time. And like not a hundred percent, whatever. It's just like at the wrong time to derail the conversation and to be like, I don't want to have the conversation that you're trying to have about your issue. And I actually like, as a Jew want to talk about my problems and my issues right now. I think that also when I see it, yeah. it it winds up being the Jewish version of I can't have white privilege because I didn't grow up wealthy. Right? It winds up being the Jewish version, like the Jewish equivalent of I want to deflect your notion that I am a person of privilege because it makes me uncomfortable to think of myself as privileged in any context um, because that attribute some culpability to me or some responsibility to me that I'm not ready to assume. And so I want to right. put myself in a re less privileged category so that I can be more comfortable with a lesser degree of responsibility. So to me, those are kind of similar claims. Like that's to say, oh, being Jewish means I'm not really white is kind of like saying I grew up poor. I'm not really white. It's a sidestep. Nessa wanted to talk about uh, something that we talked about back in episode 53 of the podcast, um, where we were talking about looking Jewish, I told a story about how um, at the Independent Minion that I go to, um, a woman showed a black woman showed up wearing a Muslim headscarf and sat down and um, was offered an aliyah, and I was and she accepted, and I was like, normally I just assume that anybody who shows up in shul is Jewish because why would I assume otherwise? But because she was wearing a Muslim headscarf, I was like. Huh, that seems I'm I was surprised um that the person giving out Alio offered one to her and then I was surprised that she accepted it and I also was a little worried that she would not that she didn't know what she was being asked um and that she might be put in a situation that was embarrassing. Um and then she was called up for her Alia and she did it perfectly and Turned out, like, I have no idea anything about her other than that she knew Hebrew and did an Aliyah grade. So she was wearing a Muslim headscarf, and I can't really, like, speak to what that necessarily <laughs> implies. I definitely had assumptions that were not correct. Um, so anyways, that was the story that I told in the um, in the episode, and I know that you had listened to it and had some kind of thoughts about unpacking that a little bit right okay yeah so the reason I wanted to unpack it in this context is like just I feel like it's important to actually see like how that systemic racism at like a like 
high level is like really impossible to entangle ourselves from, even if like we individuals are good people. And I also like wanted to reiterate that like those like anti-black structures are things that like I have participated in in the past, right? It's like, even if I try to be anti-racist, like the fact that these things are so racist and we're not like putting money and resources into fixing them, like means that they're there for us to fall into as like traps basically all the time. Can you say a little bit more about like what, what, the, the systemic racism that you see in that story. This really resonated with me because every, I feel like every time I walk into a new Jewish space or every time someone new walks into my Jewish space, um, they like, not like every person, but like people watch me and they stare at me and they wait for me to mess up because they are expecting that. And I like hearing that like from the other, like a side of like someone who's like watching a Jew of color, a black Jew, like walk into a shul, um, like felt very like, oh, like you're watching and like talking about it in public without even like talking to this person or like asking if it's okay to talk about this person like in public um, and like surveil this person, right? Because like people are like actually like watching, like I think to the extent that you noticed that the person was like actually reading the Hebrew part of like the sitter, um, and like, I don't, I, it like stresses me out so much that every time I go up to the Bima, I'm not just like, oh, like if I mess up, like if a white person messed up and who was like visibly like white, like people would just like totally forget about it immediately. But actually like so much is like hanging on this because people are expecting me to like either like confirm or like upset their assumptions. And like, I'm also just like carrying this around with me all the time. And when people are like, oh, like let's talk about the numbers of Jews of color. It's like, you don't know what like our experiences are and you don't know like the extent of racism and anti-blackness in the Jewish community is so much that like no matter what you can't escape it because like when I see Jews of color walk into shul, I also look at them. I'm like, oh, like what are you doing? here like because like and I know like people it's like I don't want to do that it's just like so entrenched like that like Jews of color are not like Jews or like there aren't Jews of color that like it's just like confusing so I like so anyways to like unpack the like actual parts of that I also thought it was interesting like the like talking about clothing Right, and it being about the headscarf, because like as a Jew of color, or as like an Asian Jew in particular, like I've thought about like clothing and gender and like signifiers of being Jewish a lot. And like I actually don't have the same freedoms as like a white woman to like signal like my Judaism, or it's like a little bit different. Um I think so like yeah, so like I was thinking about wearing like scissors out, right? So like some white women can wear scissors out as like an expression of like gender, like egalitarianism perhaps, but like if like when if I do that, like it's very stressful because I'm like, oh, people are going to look at me and be like, are you appropriating? I don't know if that's just like an internal anxiety, but like my friend, uh, I don't know if you know, like Kendra, they're on like Twitter, Kendra ELWA. But anyways, they like actually posted one time about how like as someone who wasn't a man and who is black, like they were walking around and like Orthodox Jews, like with their kippah and tzitzis and like Orthodox Jews would like stare at them. And like... Yeah, so it's just like, it's not just like clothing, it's like gender and race. Um, and I think like also like Trayvon Martin's hoodie, right? Like that was like a huge thing. It's like an Asian person or a white person can walk around with a hoodie, um, but like Jews of, where I, sorry, like, it, but like, it's like clothing is complicated and like not noticing that is like part of this like whole system. 
Um, and then also just like the surveillance piece, right? Like I think earlier we were talking about Black Lives Matter and like that ties into like the surveillance by police uh, because like individual surveillance like ties into like who are we watching? Who is suspicious? Who doesn't maybe doesn't belong here? And then like when you bring in like people with guns, like it's like so stressful. And I think like if we're going to talk about the numbers of Jews that there are, like we also like we it is entirely irresponsible to be having that conversation at all without also talking about this. So, and I like didn't mean, I don't want to like call you guys out on it because I feel like, again, like I want to reiterate, it's like totally not like individuals. It's this whole, like we need to invest so much money in like fixing this because it's impossible to get out of. Um, and I don't know if you guys have like stuff to say, like to respond to that. That's like what I really wanted to talk about today because like, I don't know, like I think that's like the issue. It's not about like whether there are 6%. I mean, it is about how many of us there are, but it's also like really just about our experiences. So this is really fascinating for me because I think thinking back on that story, my main takeaway initially had, I would claim, had nothing to do with the woman's race. That my initial takeaway was when you actively self-present with the religious accoutrements of a different faith that it mm -hmm. is reasonable to make the assumption that you're not Jewish. Like if a white woman walked in in a nun's habit, then I would assume she was Catholic. And in the same way, if a black woman walks in in a hijab or a white woman walks in in a hijab, then my assumption is that she's Muslim. But hearing you talk about this, it seems like the way that it struck you had less to do with the specific mental process that Tamar went through evaluating this person's clothing and more to do with the fact that whenever you have a Jew of color, people are going to be evaluating the signals they put out. And so the, the propensity for like assessing that person in a Jewish context, any anytime a person of color walks into a Jewish concept, they are, context, they are subject to assessment that even if the signals that she was putting off were in fact specifically non-Jewish signals, right? Because she was wearing the explicit garb of another religion. And so I don't think it's an unfounded conclusion that she might be associating with that other religion, but it sounds like the, the more salient thing to you is she was being assessed at all because she was a person right. of color in this space. Is that fair? Or, Am I understanding this correctly? Yeah. Or like not just watched, but like very closely watched. Right. And I don't know, like, I think it would make sense if like, I don't know, like if you were the Gabi to be assessing whether someone like looked like they should receive an aliyah. I was the guy. Oh, you were the guy. Wait, so you offered the person the alia or? No, but I was the guy. Okay. There was somebody else who gave Okay, that so that makes more sense. It's also like a very small community. Like there were probably 15 people in the room. So it's, an, it's like a little different than like a big room with like 100 people in it. And like everybody's looking at like one or two Jews of color. But that I didn't mean for any of that to kind of negate from your point, which I think is really important and something that like I I think I need to think about more it's something that like I um I have a friend who is a Jew by choice and she said to me that like her best ever synagogue experience was a time that she showed up at shul and 
um, somebody was just like, Shabbat Shalom, which service do you want to go to? And she just went to the one she wanted to go to and she like didn't feel surveilled or like anybody was like, what are you doing here at all? Mm -hmm. And like that totally makes sense to me. But also I felt like there's, I, there is a lot in, of kind of uh, energy in the Jewish community towards welcoming people and towards being like, we need to make Jews by choice and interfaith families and Jews of color, we need to make people feel welcome. And I think that sometimes that kind of attention towards like, we need to uh, center these experiences in some way or uh, devote more energy and resources towards this group can lead to a kind of like really stressful feeling of being watched mm-hmm. by the people in that community, which like is a totally understandable re- reaction to that. And I, I don't think that the Jewish community is like, or any, like I have not been anywhere where I'm like, Oh, these people have nailed it. It's great here. But I also think that like, I think a lot about kind of threading the needle between like, being super welcoming and feeling like making people not feel othered, but at the same time being like, matter of fact about somebody's presence. Right. I just like, once right. again, I'm saying it's not about an individual show, right? It's like the fact that there are yeah. no Jews of color in like most leadership positions is that you don't see these Jews of color. It's that like when we're focusing on not funding, cause there's only 6% of Jews of color. It's like, Oh, like Jews of color, like don't like, I think someone mentioned this, right. It's like, they don't stick around. They don't want to hang out in super racist spaces. And then like without correcting for that problem, like on an individual show level, like there's no way to fix it. It's like there's just nothing you can do. And also it's like when shul leaders or like anyone comes to me and they're like, what can I do? It's like, oh, actually, like what like why aren't the foundations funding you to figure out how you can support Jews of color? Like, why isn't that the question? Like, why are you asking like a random person like me that you're not paying to like tell you what to do? Because honestly, I don't know. Like, I'm just like a random person. And like, maybe you should like pay or like the foundations, right, should be like, oh, like these are actually the questions we need to be asking about Jews of color. Like, how do we welcome them on like a communal level? How do we get more Jews of color and like other like like into leadership positions like what does that look like on a communal level not just like how can some individuals who are very well-meaning in like a single show like try and make up for like the entire racist system of like the country and like i guess like the tamar quoted earlier um one of the lines from your email to the hadar listserv where you specifically say that people in the progressive Jewish community might think, hey, it's not my problem. Sure, the Orthodox community is racist, but not my community. And you had put in that line to sort of disabuse people of the notion that their community wasn't racist, but it took as its premise that everybody knows that the Orthodox community is kind of racist. And as an Orthodox person, uh, oof. And so I'm not saying that that's wrong. Yeah, my partner is Orthodox, or she grew up Orthodox. She's no longer like in the Orthodox community. I like go to her shul and like they're, they are like a little more racist it's like yeah and i don't want to like not disputing it so much as i'd like to dig into yeah um, dig into what the specifics are that support that um that support that perspective because i think Mm. that this is something that there's very little introspection about in the orthodox community right i mean also like i think i was digging at like non-orthodox communities for 
claiming that the Orthodox community is more racist. Like you're saying, there may be a bit of a smugness outside the Orthodox community that this is an Orthodox people problem and not an everybody else problem. But Mm -hmm. that doesn't come from nowhere. Like there is, I think, a broad perception that they're outside the Orthodox community that the Orthodox community does have a racism problem. And as somebody in that community, Mm. I'm not actually disputing that. I'm agreeing with it, but I'd like to, um, I'd like to dig in a little bit to um, what kind of trends and experiences support that understanding. So I think Manish Tana on uh, Twitter had been like publishing a ton of stuff about this recently, about like things specifically coming from the Orthodox community. I think there was like a recent article, um, but like I think they're like in the Orthodox community, maybe they're a little less like. I feel like, okay, so I'm from the South. It's like a little, it's like maybe comparing the North and the South in terms of racism. Like in the South, they'll just be like openly racist to your face. And like, they're not ashamed of it. Whereas like in the North, like the sense I get is like, oh, they're actually like less, (sighs) they don't want to be racist, but they're like, it's just like, they're like, oh, it's baked into the system, but we're going to like try not to be racist to your face. But like everything is still racist. Does that kind of make sense? (laughs) That's the like analogy I have. I don't know if it's good. Sometimes I feel like the, that the greater problem derives a little bit from greater insularity. Like the Orthodox community, I mean, the the, the farther right you go in the Orthodox community, the more um, social insularity there is, right? The, the, the less people are interacting um, outside the right-wing Orthodox community. And so given that the number of Jews of color in that, in that sector of the community is pretty small, just the number of people who are going to check you and, and point out or or the number of people who are going to contradict your your stereotypes and assumptions is pretty small because you're um, functioning in a way that that you don't encounter a lot of people who aren't like you. Um, and then once you're in my segment of the the modern Orthodox community, there's a combination of um, being Shomer Shabbat means you must live within walking distance of your shul, and so the geographic area right around your shul becomes super homogenous really fast. Um, because the housing market is just flooded with people who need to be within walking distance of your large synagogue. And so you wind up living in a really um, in a really homogenous neighborhood a lot of the time. And there's also a non-negotiable norm of sending to Jewish day school um, that's much stronger, I think, in the Orthodox community, at least in North America, than it is in other segments of the Jewish community. And that intensifies the insularity throughout your upbringing And then as a parent, you're socializing in this very narrow segment. And what this means is that the the fewer Jews of color you encounter, the fewer people of color you encounter, because you're mostly encountering Jews. Mm -hmm. And so it actually, to me, as I think it through, raises the stakes on how the Orthodox community uh, treats, welcomes, and and elevates Jews of color because those are going to be the people of color that Orthodox Jews encounter by far the most. Yeah, it's like so true. It's also, yeah, I'm just also thinking about like, so my wife like used to work at Beit Rabban, which is this like pluralistic kind of progressive day school in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And they like also have no Jews of color, right? It's like they're, I think they have zero black Jews. They have zero Asian Jews. They have like one Hispanic or like less than 1% of like Hispanic people. And like, it's like everyone else is white. Uh, And so, right. Like, yes, the stakes 
Right. And I guess in Orthodox communities, like everyone will have gone to day school, whereas like in like a non-Orthodox community, not everyone will have gone to a day school. Um, so like, yeah, yeah, I guess like people are like, and they're more like engaged in like the non Jewish world. So they encounter like more non Jewish people of color, but like, I don't know, it's still problematic like for them. Right. Because like those people that they're encountering who are people of color, like are also in the out group. Right. It's like, they're not, they're not identifying with them strongly. Um, I don't know. So yeah, it's, I, yeah, it's just like the problems across the board at like in different levels, different ways. So (laughs) I don't know. It's so hard. It's like, it's just like so deep and you like start looking at it and you're like, how are we going to do this? Like, how are we going to fix this problem? Well, (laughs) I, I don't know the answer, but I would be interested if you, if you feel like, you know, you've said a couple of times about like funding more programs for Jews of color and, um, programs that really kind of like force people to interrogate some of the demographics and realities um, in the Jewish community. Are there things like, are there any specific things that you like wish were happening or voices that you wish were being more centered in these conversations? It's okay if the answer is no, but... Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, like, torn from trying to answer that question and trying to point out that, like, once again, someone's, like, asking me a random, like, Jew, like, what I want to fund. And, like, I actually think, right, like, there are tons of initiatives for, like, Jews of color who have, like, I don't know, cool things they're doing. I Like, again, I would like to see more... It's, like... I don't know how to solve the problem. Like, I just want to see more Jews of color in leadership. I want to see black Jews in leadership. I want to see like people who look like me, Asian Jews in leadership and like who aren't like their thing is being a Jew of color. Like, and I don't see that and I don't know how to fix it. And like, if I, I feel like if we saw that, like that would start, it wouldn't like solve the problem, but that would start like, I would want to fund a conversation about getting the police out of the shoals. Like, how are we going to do community safety without having police in shoals? Like, those are just, like, very basic things. And, like, it's also, like, nowhere near enough and also would do so much good. So, yeah. yeah. Which is, I think, a good description of pretty much anything, any, any one thing we might be thinking of in this moment of trying to advance racial justice in the Jewish community. It, it would, it would do a lot of good and it would be nowhere near enough. Right. So, and I guess I would also want individual like Jews to right? like there are organizations that do racial justice. There are Jewish organizations that do racial justice. If you're an individual, you can join those organizations. So, right. Like I'm in J fridge. It's great. Like, uh, they're everywhere. Um, that's something individuals can do and like plug into like organized, like systemic change. Uh, if you're not like a funder. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Sorry. I went all like, uh, rogue on your conversation. <laughs> I was like, no, we need to talk good. about this. And yeah. So, and also sorry if it wasn't like super, uh, clear i've never been on a podcast before i was like i have no idea what's gonna happen like like i said i'm a random jew of color that (laughs) sent an email i mean that that's what happens when you try to start a conversation somebody may take you up on it yeah but i i really appreciate this conversation i think that um we all just have to get better at this stuff and it's important to be 
to have someone point all this out. Um, and I, I think that like, you know, going back to something that we were talking about with Tema, like there is always this tension of like, well, there are Jews who do this like as their job. They're like a Jew of color as their, as their job. And there's Jews of color in the community who like, you know, have other jobs and are, don't want to necessarily talk about this all the time. And, um, I think that like every community has to do a better job of like figuring out how to center those voices in a way that's appropriate and doesn't, I don't know. It's always, it's always going to be hard. I don't want to say I think we're moving because like it could be another false start, but like I have seen some cool things happen this week. So, and like really cool. And I don't know, right? Like Minnesota's talking or like Minneapolis is talking about defunding there. Or, like, getting rid of their, like, whole police department. I don't know exactly what, like, the phrasing is, but the city council's, like, agreed on that. There's just, like, so many big, giant, giant changes happening. It's crazy. I also, like, find it crazy that, like, everyone, like, wants to talk about race now. And, like, I don't know, I feel like a few weeks ago I was, like, please talk to me about this. And now everyone's, like, let's have this conversation. So, like, I don't know, again, like, too early to say maybe, like, (laughs) so... Yeah, it's very interesting to to be. I was at uh, a march today, and like, you know, I've been going to marches for the last I don't know since twenty ten, so ten years around this stuff, and like, it's very cool to see like so many people there and so much organizing and like people handing out hand sanitizer and snacks and water. And like, it just felt like really like a movement in a different way than it has before. And also I was just like, what it, why now? Like, what is it because somehow because of coronavirus that like people have are like more stressed out and this like brought up a new thing for them or is it just like finally this was the last straw like I don't know I'm just like thinking about how we got to this specific moment in this specific time and it's not like abundantly clear to me what's different in the case of George Floyd from the case of Philando Castile which is like the same city also on tape like what is different right something you know like people are people feel differently about it this time which is good but also just like I think in a way it's like that's kind of what I'm interested in unpacking mm-hmm. is like how did we get to the point where like this is the tipping point for so many people um and how can we like capitalize on that sounds bad but how can we like look into that and like use whatever it was that made this special to help move us forward. Right. More. Yeah. And also it's cool. Cause I've seen a lot of conversations that I wasn't seeing before about like how not just like white people, but like also non-black people of color are able to be allies and what that allyship looks like. And like, I feel like those conversations like were not mainstream and like now they're like seriously happening and like, I don't know, it's really, like, uh, so that, like, at least is one, another, like, cool thing. Thank you so much for your time. Thank y'all. Thank you so much for joining (laughs) us, Nessa. All right, bye. All right, Zahava. 
<laughs> it's been uh, an eventful month since we last talked. Indeed. I hope you have something really exciting to endorse. Well, I I have something that is totally unrelated to our conversations today. But first, I do want to um, share one endorsement that um, that is basically the the thing that I don't know moved me the most um, watching the Black Lives Matter protests that have erupted over the last couple of weeks. Um, I, I don't know if moved me the most is is the right is the right uh, way to frame this, but the thing that made me cry most readily. <laughs> um, so um, for those who aren't aware in our listening audience, um, one of the, um, one of the black Americans whose, um, whose death due to police violence is being mourned in these marches is Breonna Taylor, um, who is a woman who was killed by the Louisville police when they m- barged into her home um, erroneously uh, searching for drugs that had been sold 10 miles away that she had truly nothing to do with and killed her in her own home. Um, And during these marches um, was the day that would have been her 27th birthday. And around the United States, in many cities, at many marches, crowds of people began singing happy birthday for her on her 27th birthday. And I think that would have um, been enough to split me open. (laughs) Um, But specifically, the happy birthday that they were singing um, was not the happy birthday that, you know, happy birthday to you. It's... um, what was referred to in a, a, an article in, in Slate in 2016 as the Black Happy Birthday Song, um, which is the Stevie Wonder Happy Birthday Song. And I think just a lot of um, white people, including myself, until that I happened to see that article a few years back, are unaware that um, in the Black community, it is very more common to, to sing the Stevie Wonder Happy Birthday. And in a way that um, to see this manifestation of black American culture and joyful black American culture in celebration of Breonna Taylor's life in those moments in cities around the country. Um, I, I don't know what right I personally have to be moved by that, but I really was. Um, and so just in the show notes, I'm going to share a series of links just to videos of people in Atlanta and Miami and New York and Washington all um, singing for Breonna Taylor. And that was something that was really powerful for me um, in the last couple of weeks. Um, And then my other endorsement, which truly has nothing to do with race or racial justice in any way, shape or form, um, is an obituary that appeared in um, Tablet Magazine on um, 
let's see, what date was it? It was written by Dr. Rivka Press-Schwartz, um, who some people will know as the former Rebbitzin of Mount Sinai Synagogue in Washington Heights, Mount Sinai Jewish Center in Washington Heights. But um, on June 4th, she published an obituary in Tablet Magazine called The Female Torah Teaching Genius of Cleveland. A great Torah teacher died in May. I promise you have not heard of her. Um, and it's an obituary for Rebbitzin Chaya Ausband, who is the founder and dean of Yavne Teachers College for Women in Cleveland Heights. Ohio. She died in May at the age of 96, and she was part of the Haredi community. And because of just that community's uh, sort of norms of operation around women's Torah study, she didn't give public lectures. She didn't publish her thoughts. She didn't teach broadly, but she had hundreds of students over the years um, who were women learning Torah in a really serious way. And she was somebody who um, made a huge, huge impression, not only on her students, but on the community that they were a part of. Um, and she was very quietly revolutionary in the sense, um, I'm going to quote here actually from, from um Dr. Preschwartz's obituary, the first, last, and most important lesson we learned from Asband was the enormous value of women's Torah learning for its own sake, not to make us better wives and mothers, but to know better and understand Bar Hashem, the word of God. In the Haredi tradition, women do not study the oral Torah, the Mishnah, and Talmud, but in Yavna Seminary, as it was known, women studied every word of the written Torah. We gloried in the intensive study of the parts of the Bible that others skipped because they are abstruse, Levitical law about leprosy on houses, or written in Aramaic, the book of Dan. Daniel, or non-narrative and theologically challenging, Job, or just not likely to be useful to our putative planned careers as teachers, Song of Songs. Um, and just the notion that, in fact, there, there are these great female scholars in the Haredi community, people that are delving into and glorying in the study of Torah in a way that isn't consequentialist. It's not about the 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 role that they'll serve or the purpose of that learning or just the fact that Torah study is alive and vibrant and real and that these women um, are probably not going to get too many moments in the sun in terms of recognition of their greatness as Torah scholars. Um, but this was a really fabulous obituary and one that I really loved reading. Um, and it's interesting that it came out of somebody who, though she studied in the seminary, is herself modern orthodox and in fact teaches at a modern orthodox high school. Dr. Preschwartz teaches at SAR High School in New York, which is a modern orthodox high school, and herself also has a PhD in history of science from Princeton and is genuinely not a Haredi person. So the fact that she has a foot in both worlds gives her the opportunity to tell this story in a way that is um, uh, a view into uh, a classroom that I've never visited, and I really appreciated that opportunity. Um, so I'm going to share a link to this obituary in the show notes, but it is fantastic. So it's in Tablet, the female Torah teaching genius of Cleveland. Sounds great. I'm surprised for, to hear you say that you have never experienced that because I feel like even just going to a modern Orthodox high school, I did experience it. Like I had some teachers who clearly had to come from a clarity background and their their depth female teachers their like depth of knowledge was really incredible and like very apparent to me even as a teenager that they were like incredible scholars did you not 
I think that's absolutely true. I, I definitely had that as well. I think when I said that I haven't visited, I mean, I think I haven't, I haven't spent time in Haredi for Haredi teaching mm-hmm. environments. Yeah. Like the, the notion that this is something that isn't, um, that isn't a teacher trying to transcend it, her community. It's, it's a somebody trying to build yeah. her community. Cool. Um, I want to endorse, I, I spent, I had a really hard time coming up with an endorsement this month because like there are some things that have been bringing me joy and were grounding me um, in the past month, but they really are not Jewish things. And I was kind of grasping for straw as draws. But then I remembered this amazing song called Shvu Aim by um, an Israeli artist whose name is Dikla. And um, the song is really good, but also the music video is really excellent. A thing that I like about it, I'm going to see if I can send a picture of Dikla to you. Because um, when I first saw her, when I first saw this video, I was like, she looks like my every Hebrew teacher I had growing up. Um, And I'm curious if you will um, feel the same way. The picture where she's wearing a green dress and she has her hand kind of up by her mouth. Does she look like... Okay, I'm sorry to our listening audience. I cannot see the photo, but I totally see what you're saying. It was... So this this uh, video was shared with me uh, by my dad, and he is really into this song. And, like, I listened to this video... I watched this video, and I was like, this song is very good. And also, it's very weird because... It's like a Hebrew teacher I had in third grade singing about breaking up with her boyfriend, which is a weird confluence of things. Um, Anyways, she is amazing. The video is really great, um, not least because it's one of those videos where it's like one long shot um, with different people walking through and dancers. And um, yeah, it's, it's a really good music video. It has nothing whatsoever to do with everything that's going on in the world right now. Um, but maybe you would like a break from that for a little while. This video is like four minutes long, so just a tiny little reprieve from all of that. All right, so how about we made it? <laughs> uh, thank you so much for listening, everyone. If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts um, or let us know what you'd like us to discuss on future episodes. You can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page, <clears throat> search for Jewish Public Media, or on our website, jpmedia.co. You should choose Talking and Shul from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co, and that's a really great way to show support and ensure that we can keep bringing you new episodes every month. Thank you so much, Sahaba. Thanks so much. It was great having this conversation with you. Yeah, thank you. We will see you next month.